this time around we're talking about It Happened Here, which is a film from 1964 made by Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Mollo. It's the story of what would have happened in the UK if the Allies had lost the war and Nazi Germany was occupying England. Um, it doesn't travel into the future in the way that, say, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle does. Um, it's, it's actually set in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War in 1945, 46. Mm -hmm. uh, Shane, this is the first time you've seen it, because um, I forced the DVD on you some yeah. time back. Yeah, I don't know. I just always was kind of hesitant to watch it. I don't know. It just didn't look like it was going to be a, a fun movie. You know, it's the Nazi occupation of England. Uh, it feels like it's going to be pretty bleak, and it is, but it's also, you know, really watchable. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, it's really, it's gripping, and, yes. you know, I don't know if entertaining's the right word, but it, it definitely stimulates you as you're watching it, you know, and that maybe now looking back on it, you don't feel that the newsreel footage has been faked, like it's fake archive, it just all feels very authentic, and I think maybe for a modern audience, it, that's why it has slightly more of a chill to it, because... It seems much more realistic now, mm. and I mean we watch we've watched it. At, you know, today is the fifth of June. We're talking about the anniversary of the D-Day landings yesterday, and you know President Trump's in power, and uh, you know it feels feels extremely relevant and contemporary. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it, it does. It does. Yeah, it's uh, shocking how how fresh it is, and how shocking it still is. Yeah, but technically, I think part of the reason that that it it feels so seamless is that. It was made, well, it was released in 64, but it was made over an eight-year period from 1956. I mean, there's there's lots of documentation on the making of it, which is extremely entertaining um, and quite eye-opening and amazing in places. Um, Kevin Brownlow started making it when he was 15. Mm -hmm. He was doing kind of odd jobs in the film industry. Um, that was in 1956, and England still looked very similar then to how it had. Well, yeah, he said something about making a film... 11 years after the Second World War, would anybody still be interested in, <laughs> in Hitler and the Nazis? You know, would it still have an audience? And he had, um, you know, in terms of locations, there were still bomb sites going well into the 60s. It's funny, in, in, in the making of stuff, he talks about how much stuff had changed and how much work he had to do in, in getting, you know, the costuming the, and, and the period detail right. But coming back to my original point is the fact that now you and I would never know the difference between sure. something from the 50s and something from the 40s unless yeah, yeah. it was glaring. But I think from what I understand, the relationship with Andrew Mollo is he brought that attention to detail. He was They were both teenagers when they met and mm. Brownlow was looking for more period costumes and Mollo had a collection. Basically. Huge collection because yeah. he was a, a wealthy, from yeah. a wealthy family and was obsessed with military uniforms. Yeah, he was only 16, wasn't he? <laughs> it's quite an odd obsession. But I guess the war is still present, you know, it's what happened when you were a baby, so I yeah. guess that's why. And it's not as sinister as it sounds, you know, it's effectively, if you're, if you're a wealthy kid and you're, you're interested in something, you know, a lot of people would collect little toy soldiers. Yeah, sure. And he just kind of collected the, the outfits. There were people they met in the making of who who they recruited as experts and consultants who were slightly less healthily obsessed with it but yeah yeah but you know there's a, there is that morbid curiosity mm. with the human race's atrocities and mm. what we're capable of and i think when it's that recent you can you can see how people who weren't directly involved with it find a way of engaging with it as i don't know maybe yeah. processing or even celebrating the mm. dark side i i came across it by a very weird route, I'd never heard of it at all. Um, and back in 2008, 2009, I was very excited about Blu-rays. Um, and I was looking for things that looked interesting in HD. And 
the BFI had brought out Win Stanley, which was their second film, oh, yeah. which looked interesting. So I bought it, and it 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 was really really good. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific film. I'd recommend it as a follow up to this. But it happened here was was readily available on DVD for cheap. So I just bought it and and was stunned. It was. I think it's. Technically, I think it's one of the greatest low-budget films ever made. Mm-hmm. I put it right up there with, you know, Razorhead and, and Dark Star. Yeah, and Primer. Yeah, Primer. Perfect. Um, but I, th- I still think even now, after this second viewing, the BFI have brought it out on Blu-ray, which looks remarkable. Highlights a few of the differences in, in the production, different stages of the production. But um, it's quite odd when you when you read a synopsis of the film, or even if you, you, know, you pick up the DVD and look at the back, you feel as if it's going to be like a fake documentary type thing. Mm-hmm. But what nobody ever mentions is that it has actually quite a, a strong kind of dramatic through line. It is actually about yeah, yeah, it. that's it. Well, well, a lot of the um, newsreel footage is footage that they shot to look like newsreel. It takes place in, you know, cinema screenings of news footage. So that's why they went out and shot all of that stuff. And it is some of the more striking visual elements, but it's kind of an extra layer of technique. I think they even shot, uh, something for the armistice from the First World War, which was fake news reel within the news. Oh, reel. yes, yeah, so yes, the famous Christmas Day football yeah, exactly. match. Which so, is... so they've sort of everything in there basically is stuff that they've created. So mm. they didn't use any news reels. So I think that stuff. That, well, no, yeah. you mean that's that's yeah. that's the most striking aspect of the film, and that's yeah. what everyone talks because it about. It looks so authentic, yeah. yeah. It's, but the film is is a, a narrative drama that yeah. features newsreel footage. Yeah, as as garnish mm. as yeah. Kind of, yeah. But I mean, you know, what is going to get bums on seats quicker than a picture of Big Ben with the the, the Nazi the, flag the SS on marching <laughs> up and down? Yeah, exactly. So it's this. It's actually the story of Pauline, who is um, a widow. She was widowed in the war. Um, her husband was killed by the Nazis, and she lives in the countryside. Because most of the fighting from English partisans is taking place in in the country and London is effectively a secure demilitarised zone for the Nazis, um, people are being evacuated from the country into the city. She's a district nurse and she's left behind in the evacuation with a handful of people who are then unfortunately slaughtered by the partisans, by the English. And then she's eventually travels to London and has to weigh up her moral choices between collaborating and becoming a nurse working for the Nazi organisation or whether to abstain from doing that and yeah. not have a living. Well, I, th- I think what's really clever about the film is that it kind of shows an occupying force as being completely in control. You know, you don't feel like... I don't know if you've seen pictures of Paris under the Nazi occupation and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it just becomes a German city, you know. And I, I think mm-hmm. they do the same in this film with London and it's very credible that there's that much power and authority and mm. I think there's a line around this kind of period in the film where they say basically we fought a war and we lost yeah so that's it like we, you know, we're, the, we're the vanquished and this is our lot mm. it does make some quite sly points about and this is this for me is how the film is quite um, pertinent today about how a certain kind of English character would fit in quite well. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's when she goes to when she eventually when Pauline eventually decides to become a nurse working for the occupying forces, mm. she goes to an interview and she says, oh, "I, I haven't, I haven't quite decided yet." Oh, and yeah, it's yeah. an English girl interviewing her. She mm. says, "You accept our decisions. We don't accept yours." Mm-hmm. And you think, "Yes, yeah, some people would fit into this. I think yeah, quite but nicely." I think the period when they started making the the film, you obviously had a you know a fascist movement in England that was proudly fascist mm. yeah and i think 
from the 60s you had the National Front and so on and so forth you know it's not yeah black shirts yeah that's yeah. It. It's, it you know I think always society is being pulled left and right by the need to feel stable and secure in your home mm. and that's you know the vulnerability that we all have as humans it reminded me of um there's a book I read some years ago, um, A State of Denmark, which is uh, which was published in 1964 uh, by Derek Raymond, uh, which is about, it's not directly about an English fascist state, but again, it's a very timely book these days. It um, has, a, England has become a fascist country because a kind of a, a strongman ruler has eventually become the, the prime minister or the, mm-hmm. the ruler of the country. And it's told from the point of view of a journalist who upset him um, on his, in his ascent to power, and is he's now fled the country and is living as an expat in Italy. All right, okay. But the um, the fascist ruler of England has you know never forgets his enemies. Yeah, sure. And puts extreme political pressure on Italy to um, send him back. Yeah, yeah. And he's sent back. And what I'm ramblingly getting to is that there's a section towards the end of that where he ends up back in England and he's being escorted back to London. Mm. And some of the characters of like the English soldiers. They seemed broad and far-fetched when I was reading it at the time, but these days it doesn't seem that broad or far-fetched, the way that some people are willing to just muck in and be told what to do. Yeah, but I, I mean, here's the thing, you know, I was in the military for eight years, and generally you go in as a teenager. Before you've developed any political ideology or understanding, they take you straight from school. Well, they don't take you, we volunteer in this, yeah. in this yeah. country. And then you put the uniform on and you believe in the hierarchy and the structure that you are serving the will of the government and the government represent the people and they're elected democratically. Mm. So, you know, I think most servicemen, you know, without the sort of influence of the media, generally are apolitical. Mm. And I think you just believe in, in the hierarchy. You believe that you're doing the right thing because you've volunteered and you know i'm sure the germans on the other side you know there's plenty of german soldiers that were unaware of the atrocities being committed by their country and just thought they were Mm. doing the right thing oh i respect that but but what i'm trying to flag up i think is the opposite of that i think there's people that quickly there's people there's people who are kind of quite snide of character prejudiced and unpleasant people who will who in England or in any yeah, country yeah, that's being occupied, who will who will quite comfortably slot into that. Yeah, sure. Pauline comes to ask another character for help illegally. Another nurse is working in her hospital, and that nurse immediately gets up um, and goes and reports her. Yeah, yeah. And you just get the feeling that is something in her character because mm. it's, it's this this film's really good with characterization. You yeah, get yeah, very yeah, sympathetic yeah. people. You know, on, on both sides of the spectrum, you get some mm. people who are sympathetic and people who are. Well, I think less some so. of the criticisms at the time were how much it humanizes all of the perspectives mm. so you know i think there's there is a push to sort of make nazis into cartoon characters because then they're easy to point the finger at mm. and i think to see them as human beings is it's quite a complicated thing to put on film it's worth stressing that the there's there's one scene in the middle of it happened here where um you could you basically call him an english bloke who's who's joined up he's a fascist he's a fascist and he's kind of quite calmly and comfortably explaining why he's happy with fascism mm-hmm. it humanizes him but it it doesn't sympathize with him at all it just presents no, it him makes your blood run cold yeah. listening to his perspective 
But it's it's quite odd. That's the scene that got the film into a lot of trouble, and I think United Artists insisted on cutting that before they distributed yeah, it. That's right, yeah, because it's sort of seen as a director's cut now, isn't it, with that yeah. four-minute conversation. And that, what's great about it is that it's just a conversation. It's not like a rant or yeah. and, an and, argument, and they're just sat there talking, aren't they? Yeah, and Paul, he's, Pauline isn't asking him kind of... She's not asking pointed political questions. Mm-hmm. She's just saying, well, well why do you, why do you she think She does that? ask a brilliant question, which made me sort of clap my hands in celebration. It was such a brilliant question. It's like uh, she says something like, you know, if the Jews are responsible for the capitalist crisis, how can they also be responsible for communism and socialism like the two things are complete opposites and you're blaming them for both (laughs) and he's just like well I don't know (laughs) I think there's only one professional actor in the film and that's Sebastian Shaw who'd already had like a 30 year career Um, he plays the doctor friend of Mm. Pauline's who's um, harbouring partisans yeah yeah but everyone else is is non-professional including Pauline Um, and I think particularly with stuff like you know the, the the scene we've just discussed the fact that you've got non-professionals and, and Kevin Brownlee was at his wits end trying to get them to, to deliver performances because they'd mm. stumble over their words and yeah, get yeah. things slightly wrong. But I think it absolutely helps the film in every single way. Yeah, initially I found her performance uh, a little, not distracting, because her character just wants to get on with the nursing mm. and she's not oblivious to the occupation, but also she accepts that it's a reality for a defeated country to be occupied. Mm. And there's still nursing to be done. Yeah. And so... Um, well, that's that's a conversation she has with the Doctor, because, again, one of the things I like about the film is that it doesn't present any point of view unquestioned. Mm. I, I think Pauline's character and the, the core of her as a character, as a person, is just that she's a nurse through and through. Yeah. She wants to do good. And, you know, the, the final image of the film is, is of her nursing, um, and it just fades to black. And yeah, she's yeah. just doing what she does, which is helping people throughout her life. Yeah, that's it. But even that is questioned by the doctor who says, you know, how how can you just behave in this way and try and return to some sort of status quo when we're, you know, in this position, you know, under this ideology? Yeah, yeah. There's no kind of point of view that's that's left unquestioned or left to just hang there as mm-hmm. if as if an argument's been settled. Yeah, you know, and I mean, spoiler, but you know, in the end, uh, the, uh, the partisans are fighting back, and the, the Nazis yeah. are pushed out of the country and but you know quite easily it could have just gone the other way that that became normality and mm. and that was it for generations even so it's interesting you flag that that scene up it's it, it shows the partisans rounding up the Nazis from a village you know yeah, reclaiming a village yeah, yeah. and then they you know you think okay great the, the forces mm. of, of good have prevailed yeah, that's it. and then they round them up in a field and machine gun them just execute and it's really brutal really it's, really it's brutal unexpected as, as anything else that we've seen you know I think it it's a film that like there are like really visceral brutal moments and then we're, I mean we're at the back working towards the front but there's a sequence ahead of that where uh, Pauline ends up working in a lovely country hospital and that whole sequence yeah. is so beautifully put together. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're bringing in you know Eastern Europeans that have fled the conflict, and uh, I think they're miners or something, aren't they? Yeah, they're, but uh, but they're there to be inoculated, aren't they? Yeah, they all have TB, mm, and it's it, yeah, it's a TB it. hospital, um, so they're there to to recuperate yeah, before they go it. back it's to work. Yeah, her first night. She arrives fresh off the train, mm. gives out some inoculations, go to bed, and then she wakes up in the morning and the hospital's empty. Mm. And the inoculations were mm. not, euthanasia. Not that, yeah, 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 exactly. And then she finds, I think, their 
digging the graves in the garden and it all clicks into place for her, doesn't mm. it? What's happening? And then I think she leaves to be with the partisans. She's She refuses to do that um, and she's sent in handcuffs on a train which That's is then right. attacked. It's attacked by the partisans. By the partisans. She's so she, sort of liberated, isn't she? Well, she's taken into custody. She's effectively in prison because she's a sympathiser. She's working right, for right. Yeah, that's it, that's the it. occupiers. But then she's given the opportunity to nurse the partisans yeah. because they're short of nurses. Yeah, that's it. That's so she can continue through circumstances just doing what she can. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what side she's on, she's helping people. Yeah, that's it. I think by the end of the film, you kind of you understand her as well. I didn't initially get her performance. It felt like a silent movie actress or something, but... I think her journey from Salisbury into London under occupation and then back out to the countryside with a different perspective. I think if she hadn't been so calm and had been more reactionary, then it would have just made everything too heightened and dramatic. And yeah, it's... Her calmness is, is, is actually what allows us to access the atrocities. Yeah, and it helps that she's an older character. She's in sort of early middle age. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you, you can you can imagine the... It's about 21, isn't it? <laughs> in, the, uh, in the 60s. You can imagine um, perhaps today it would it would be a, a, a young person who's experiencing things, all these atrocities for the first time. Yeah, and it'd yeah. be It would be melodramatic and over the top. But this kind of quiet, almost resignation of somebody who's already lived a little yeah, yeah. Is, is a lot more... And suffered grief and, mm. you know, had seen the bad things that the world has to offer. Mm, already. And understands that just surviving that is kind of... It's good enough. It's quite interesting what you said um, just a bit earlier about a performance, about it being kind of turning, reacting, that sort of thing. Mm. I think a lot of that, um, and again, I'm not going to go into massive detail about the making of the film because you should buy the everyone everyone in the world should buy the Blu-ray from the BFI. Um, and also, Kevin Brownlow published a book about the making of um, in the early '70s called uh, "How It Happened Here," which is still available, and you should read it. Yes, yeah, a really good. Uh book about filmmaking mm. I mean there's a whole sidebar about him as a film historian that we should mm. we come back to mm. but I think in, in terms of in terms of technique because obviously it was made at weekends on you know on a borrowed 16mm camera a lot of the early stuff in the film um, and it was, it was filmed kind of effectively chronologically mm -hmm. um, is shot 16mm and the, the filmmaking is quite rudimentary I don't know man there's a few flashes in there there's a scene where Oh, in the first five minutes where they're hiding in the dark and you hear a wagon pull up and the camera crashes into each of the faces of the people hiding in the dark. I'd say it was ambitious, but... Yeah, I really liked it. It really sort of... But, you could feel that, you know, he's... Again, you know, we can talk later about his work as a film historian, but, you know, he was friends with Abel Gantz, you know, one of yes. the greatest filmmakers that ever dared to pick up a camera and, yeah. and make art. So... You can feel that Brownlow wants. Yeah, I mean, there's there's ambition there, but the the technique hasn't quite settled. And there's also rudimentary stuff like you know, there's no overlapping dialogue at all. Mm -hmm. It's kind of yeah, yeah. cut, talk, cut, talk, yeah, sure. cut, reaction. And it's only a little later on, um, where there were some years into the production shooting at weekends, where some funding came through, mm -hmm. and they hired Peter Sushitsky, the um, fabulous DOP. It's his first feature. Yeah, right. And his started, father was a cinematographer, wasn't he? Yeah, Wolfgang. Wolfgang, he, he did Get Carter. Get Carter, and he continued working right through till till the 80s, 90s. And I think his son, Adam Shusitsky, is also a cinematographer. Yes. He did, uh, I think, quite a lot of commercials, and I think I, he recently did some of the best episodes of Fear the Walking Dead. Okay. Mm. 
<laughs> Best visual episodes, I should say, <laughs> for Fear the Walking Dead. Um, and, yeah, so uh, Sushitsky uh, insists on shooting on 35mm. Um, and, and it's just that the point I'm trying to make is that some years into production, they've yeah. obviously learned a lot technically. Yeah, yeah. And the film becomes steady and measured. And yeah. the filmmaking tends to work a lot better as a result. It's not simply a question of the leap to 35mm, but there's suddenly a lot more confidence in, in pacing. Well, I guess they've got so much time. You yes. know, he talks about it being like a year between shots, you mm. know, in some places. And I think to have that material and to be going over it and thinking about what you're trying to say and Planning very, seeing very the world carefully. change as well, all those mm. steps forward, I think it may have been frustrating in the moment, but I think it informs the film, mm. you know, so you do get that powerful ending that resonates and you know I, I think once you've seen the film it's not something that slips into the uh into the deep storage of film viewing you know it's something that I think S stays with you stays yeah. with you yeah yeah and it's an impressive achievement powerful bit of storytelling so Pauline uh, gets to London and joins uh, what's called the immediate action group which is I guess the uh new name for emergency services yeah that's it and yeah. all, everything that kind of falls under that that blanket um and when she joins the medical branch i think they say to her something like you know if you're not a nurse with us you're just a nurse with an empty stomach mm. meaning that she's not going to work essentially mm. so she she joins the medical service and then the guy that interviews her takes her to the pub yes <laughs> And probably gets beaten up by a load of civilians who, mm. you know, take umbrage, obviously, at the uh, the occupation. Yeah, right, right, starts, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's it, it really kicks off, and it's it's pretty sort of dynamic. And then after that, she's kind of into her immediate action training. Mm. It's a very well put together sequence. It's like a training montage, really, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And it's, it's a combination of practical training and, mm. and ideological in, indoctrination. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a, a fairly... Uh, lofty lecture by I can't remember the actor's name. He actually played Win Stanley in their other film oh, Win yeah, Stanley okay. about national socialism. Uh, what I really liked about this sequence is that it doesn't show her as the odd one out. You know, she's her and her peers are all kind of decent people. Mm. You know, they they've just put on the uniform so they can continue serving the and, people. Yeah, yeah. And they they're not kind of goose stepping around or or becoming Nazis. They're yeah, just working it. together. Yeah, that's it. And then you know, they want to get the job done and keep helping people and you mm. know, if this is our new leaders, you know, I guess doesn't really make a great deal of difference. No, you're just running it, yeah. around and jumping on an ambulance yeah, you and know, nursing and you're a nurse under Obama and you're a nurse under Trump. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's just whoever's whoever's in power, isn't it? Yeah. Again, you do get kind of little suggestions of, of the, the, the different temperaments of different people. There's the conversation we mentioned before, which mm. is between, you know, a lot of them sitting around in their downtime and they happen to discuss yeah. Jews and, and that's it, that's the Nazi it. ideology with somebody who's a, a little bit more enthusiastic about it. Yeah, 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 that, and that's chilling. Mm. But I think what's quite clever about the film is that we know that Pauline isn't really a fascist. Yeah, she's... But she's wearing the uniform and what we do see is... When she's finished her training and she's in the streets of London, we see civilian reaction to the uniform. Yeah. You know, people looking at her. And it's quite carefully withheld, isn't it? Because you have a long sequence of the training and everything and getting to know. And yeah, you think, yeah. okay, okay, this is everyday life. And then you realise it's not, it's not going to be that for her. Yeah, exactly. And when she visits her friends, she keeps her coat on. Yes. She doesn't want them to see the uniform. Yeah, she goes to visit old friends, um, who's the, the doctor and, and his wife, who she... I, 
we realised she's lived in London previously and then mm. moved to the country and these are friends that she knew from back then. That's it. Who's still working as a doctor but not for the regime, I think. Yeah, and they've lost their big house that's been taken over by Yes, they've been given German the, officers the basement. And they're in the part basement. Of it. Aren't they? Yeah. And then we right. they later we find them harbouring a wounded partisan, which mm. is another great scene. And this is um this is where Sebastian Shaw, the actor, comes in playing playing the doctor friend. Um he he's the only professional actor in it and his performance seemed a little polished compared to, I mean obviously it would be yeah but he seems slightly slightly odd yeah slightly unnatural isn't it and uh, according to the making of um he was the only person who had difficulty remembering his lines <laughs> right, okay he, he was terrible to try and get a proper Always performance out of him. Isn't it? i think the film's really good at presenting a kind of convincing surrender for england you know this idea that okay it's it's done we lost we crack on mm. and you know do our best in this situation. I saw a documentary when I was at film school called "The Sorrow and the Pity," which was about the Vichy occupation, yeah, um, and how there were plenty of collaborators there, and, and then suddenly the occupation ended and the collaborators were still living yeah. in the town and yeah. everybody knew. There's another really good film um, from two thousand with. Uh, Monica Bellucci called Melina. Have you seen that? It's, no. It's uh, Giuseppe Tornatore. And it's about, it's one of those films that's really clever. It's about a young boy obsessed with a beautiful woman in the village. Mm. And then there's an occupation and she's a collaborator. Oh, I remember it coming out. And but, then yeah. it just, you know, it goes from this beautiful Italian boy, childish uh, obsession to yeah. uh, like, and then it. it it, it, I mean, it's it's brutal by the end. It's so upsetting. Mm. I haven't seen that one, but it, it what you were just saying made me think of um, Ada, which is oh, yeah, the, I seen that. yeah the previous film by um, Pavel Palakowski. Mm-hmm. Apologies if I've mispronounced that. That has a, a, a subplot. It, it's about a, a young woman about to take her vows and become a nun, but she she is encouraged to take a little time off and consider it by you know the mother superior. Mm-hmm. Um, Good advice. Yeah, in in post-war Poland. Uh, So she goes and lives a little, but then this subplot emerges towards the end where you suddenly realise the scope of of Polish collaboration in the Second World War. You know, there was a fair few anti-Semites and and when the Jews were exterminated, they were quite happy to to live in their houses. She goes to visit her her family's old house and finds it still occupied by... Um, one of the villagers that she used to know has, has mm-hmm. taken over the house and refuses to give it up, even years after the war. Yeah, yeah. But how there is, it's not like everybody has just given up. There's still this sort of underlying threat of mm. resistance. Um, yeah, yeah. The, it it balances out quite nicely because you 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 know you have that scene as well. Kind of, it's, how can I put it? When we're with her, we're kind of in in the middle of the propaganda machine. They go to the cinema to watch the news because obviously it's before TV. Mm. Oh, and very very clever sequence of the newsreel as well. Yes. You mentioned it before the, yeah. the faking the the armistice. Yeah, it's fantastic. Match you know. from the First World War. And all of those shots of uh, you know London under occupation are, are really convincing. Mm. Um, and you know. But it's so cleverly. I just want to go back to that newsreel mm. section because it's so cleverly written. Mm-hmm. The way that the way that a moment of kind of peace and brotherhood can be turned into into something so 
sinister and as because yeah, yeah. the newsreel is kind of trying to, it's re- trying to say, but yeah, yeah it's, rewrite history in terms of the, the kin- rephrasing yeah, history isn't it rephrasing history as the kind of the kinship you know the the similar spirits that the english that's and the germans yeah, have yeah, that's, yeah. that's brothers aren't we yeah. you know and this idea that the football match on christmas morning in the first world war was yeah the first world war was a was it's all part of a Jewish conspiracy to keep these two brotherly nations exactly, apart. Yeah. yeah, and the armistice football match was, you know, the first ray of light mm-hmm. in the in the dawning of this new brotherhood yeah, between it. the two countries. The res- yeah, the resistance. It's incredibly well written. Yeah, it's clever. Um, and I didn't. I guess it's, it makes perfect sense. I didn't realise that that was shot specifically for it. I mm-hmm. thought it could have been repurposed footage. No, no, they shot everything <laughs> that you see in the film was shot by these two teenagers. Mm. It, it could be clunky writing in any anyone else's hands, mm. but it just feels like part of everyday life. You know, you would go to the movies and you would be indoctrinated. Well, yeah, as as happens still to this day, yeah, every sure. every day by the mass media. Yeah, yeah. Any any place you go to for information, you're still subject to the bias of whoever's mm. pre- presenting it. And yeah. I think when it's the state, <laughs> then uh, you know, I'm sure you've watched Chernobyl recently. You know, that's yeah. all about the state presenting one. Truth. One version of, <laughs> yeah. of, of facts, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I really like there's just those sort of calm shots of her on the tube and, you know, there's just Nazis on the tube, mm. you know, in uniform, swastikas, yeah. hats. It, it, I find that stuff just really chilling, how normal it becomes halfway through the film. Mm. That's what London looks like. Nazis uh, trying to pick up girls in the street. Yeah, yeah, that's like, it. As if, they were, as if they were GIs or yeah, something. Yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the story progresses. Um, she... I guess completes her training, um, but she's but she's very quickly in trouble as well. Yeah, with... she she continues to visit her her doctor mm. doctor friends who is harboring wounded it, partisan fighter. wounded partisans. And when when it's revealed what the doctor and his family are doing and how dangerous it is, it's not that she wants to preserve the status quo, but she she's obviously she's alarmed. She's not entirely mm. enamoured of the partisans because she saw them slaughter her friends quite yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. She's not ambivalent, shall we say, but she hasn't. She just wants life to continue really and the doctor's opposed to that he has this um fabulous line which i wrote down it's um she's arguing against killing because her friends have been killed um and he says well fascism is a a disease of the mind when you fight a disease you often use its own germ for inoculation Mm -hmm. which is you know a fabulous call call to arms yeah right right but then it's undercut totally at the end of the film with the you know the slaughter of the nazis unarmed nazis in the in the field yeah so that's I, th- I think that sequence is also when she said look we fought a war and we lost mm. that's that's where but she does she's not you know she does agree to help she's still she's still conflicted yeah yeah that's it because um, ultimately she's a, a caregiver yeah and that's that is unfortunately what sets the next chain of events off is that she goes to a colleague um she's asked to get morphine mm-hmm. for the kind of the wounded partisan in in the basement who's screaming in pain and endangering yeah, yeah. She's asked to get morphine, so she goes to work and asks a colleague who immediately gets up and goes and reports her. Yeah, that's it. Um, which is another of those little... It's, it's it's very much part of human nature to become part of that machine. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, completely give in to the uh, hierarchy. Yeah. Um, so she flees before she, you know, she gets up and leaves. Um, I think... Does she return to warn her friends? Yes. And, and by it's then, at that point they're being arrested and yeah, laid off. Yeah, that's it. They're being marched out, aren't they? Um, and then I think immediately after that she's sent out of London to work in the hospital. And it seems like a, 
a utopia after the turmoil of the city to turn up at this leafy country house. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Birds it, are tweeting. It, it, it dwells on all the details. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this I'm, it almost feels in, like it's in colour. Yes. <laughs> I was absolutely in awe of this sequence because I'd forgot. I I remembered the twist from when I first watched it, but how well constructed it is and how Mm. deceptive it is and deliberately deceptive. Everything is is comfortable. The people that she works with seem, Mm. you know, like the ideal. It's this slightly fussy head doctor and friendly. But what is good at doing, you know, the film in London, I think we've kind of seen the sort of working class collaborators when we get out into the countryside. It's there's. You know, it's the more educated mm. collaborators. Also, yes, we we later discover. Yeah, or it's you know not necessarily collaborators in in the moral sense. Again, these are mm. just people who are, who are, even though they're doing something hideous, they they mm. think it's just part of the everyday routine now. Well, I think none this, of them. This is a you know this is executions though. This is mm. it's different to still doing your milk round or something like that. <laughs> yeah, or delivering the post. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was I was absolutely in awe of how how well put together this was and how mm. how good of a misdirection it was. Yeah, yeah. I remember not seeing it coming, but I, you know, the second time around, it's like the sleight of hand here is so yeah. good. And it's clever because she's so keen to jump in and help yeah. people that she'd like <laughs> start slamming needles into people, and and then as she's drifting off to sleep, I think the radio is talking about the Americans coming as well. So we feel like ah, oh, this is like. It's going to be a big positive shift now, and yeah, this is kind of a peaceful epilogue before we have <laughs> yeah, yeah, some exactly. kind of redemptive conclusion. Yeah, where we see the planes coming in or something like that, and mm. parachutists. But instead, no, she wakes up in the morning and the hospital's empty. She's participating in executing yeah. her own patients, which yeah, is, I think, that kind of. And again, by by this point, I know I'm praising the actress and the lead mm. character so much; it feels like I'm in love with her. But you, yeah. you've lived with her so long that you exactly, really do yeah. feel the absolute moral betrayal of, of what she's had to do yeah yeah so then so then we cut to her kind of you know handcuffed on a train mm-hmm. she's obviously just from that one image she's obviously refused to do this anymore yeah, yeah. it's being escorted back to london i guess yeah probably um and we have a couple of flashbacks kind of obviously explaining what's happened confrontations and mm. but you don't get you know a big confrontation scene or a, or a lecture or anything yeah. you just kind of cut to i'm i can't i can't do this i'm not doing this anymore mm-hmm. um and at that point, she's uh, the train's attacked by partisans, and she's again. You realise she's she's on the wrong side of history at this point. She's um, imprisoned by the partisans, mm-hmm. who um, are they American? Some of them. I think there's an American giving like a, uh, a strategy planning session, but mm. I think there's they're mostly Brits. Mostly Brits, yeah, and they seem again. They seem. It's, Again, this film keeps keeps misdirecting you, and you think that you've settled into like a moral certainty, mm-hmm. because these troops all seem like you know yeah, down to, down fires, to earth. Aren't they? Yeah. yeah, well, they just seem like down to earth, quite chummy, mm. quite chummy English guys, mm. English blokes, and then you know later on, once they've captured the village mm-hmm. and slaughter all their prisoners, yeah, yeah. Uh, you realise it's you've had the rug pulled from under you again, mm. and there's there's no certainties here. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. There's brutality on both sides. Mm. We could talk, I guess, a little bit about Kevin Brownlow. Do, do you know much about him? What, where, how did he? I I know what I've picked up from reading his book, and you know, um, there's there's also some very good interviews on the new Blu-ray DVD. Um, he kind of covers the same ground, but he's very, very engaging and down to earth yeah, and yeah. friendly. Um, I read his book on. Um, 
the restoration of Napoleon, Abel Gantz's Napoleon. Oh, right. Which was a book uh, editor you used to work with called Nicholas Wayman Harris. Right. Thrust upon me once, and okay. I was just like, this sounds very... Uh, I was rambling about uh, early narrative cinema, 1895 to 1915, which mm. was one of those little things I really liked when I did my A-level, because, I don't know, at that point I was just watching Scorsese, and I thought that was the the start of cinema and then yes. Scorsese is quite open about his influences and then you just go right back to the early pioneers of silent cinema and you see you know they were writing a language of cinema yeah. that a lot of people take for granted now mm. but Abel Gantz was trying to rewrite the language of cinema before it even been written he's, he's such an outrageous filmmaker it's wonderful going back to those films now because the language obviously the, those are the roots of the language but it's changed in the way that kind of spoken language and written language does over years and years and, and centuries. It's mm. changed and, and mutated. Yeah, but so that also you... it's um, it's reduced somewhat as well. It becomes leaner and more defined and mm. more certain, and it lacks the powerful experimentation of the that's, early that's, pioneers. That's what I was going to say. It's like Joan of Arc, mm -hmm. um, the, the the famous silent version. That I watched that shamefully. I watched that fairly recently, a couple of years ago, for the first time. And some of it's so eccentric and, mm. and kind of baroque and the editing patterns and the camera moves and uh, are so alien to what it's become now. Sure. It's, it's like reading, and in a good way, it's like reading early English or something. Yeah, or okay. it, it goes off in directions that you just don't go these days, you know, early silent cinema. Yeah, yeah. So just going back to Napoleon, that's a film that Kevin Brownlow saw when he was a kid and just became obsessed with. And he slowly pieced together... And it's still continuing to this day to piece together snippets of film from, you know, dustbins and, <laughs> I don't know, not dustbins, piecing together bits of film from archives and uh, labs and projection booths and, uh, you know, just he's been tirelessly hunting down like a complete version of Abel Gantz's film. Mm. I've seen it twice at the Royal Festival Hall with a full orchestra. Okay. Um, it's one of those things because it's five, six hours and then they have all the intermissions, you know, you just spend all day, it's a day. From, <laughs> from breakfast till like, you know, sunset, just lost in this epic film. And it, it was supposed to be the first of a trilogy of films about Napoleon as well. So, you know, mm. imagine if he'd have actually got the funding. I think he sunk, Abel Gantz sunk two studios making it and when they asked him why he said pioneers make history not mo not money <laughs> which is a credo I've lived by um, uh, so yeah Brownlow that, that was my first introduction to him was just this kind of obsession with Napoleon that sort of led me to go and hunt down the film and, and watch it mm. there's, a, there's an interesting sidebar to the uh, Brownlow version of Napoleon is that Francis Ford Coppola has a version of Napoleon which is much shorter mm. but his father Carmine Coppola uh, recorded a new score for it so in the States I think they can't watch the Brownlow version because the, Coppola the, suppressed it you right. know, so over a rights issue and basically wanting to keep his father's, father's version yeah. as the definitive version yeah but what was quite interesting after seeing Napoleon and then a year or so later going back to Coppola's um, Dracula film, which mm. I, I've always had a soft spot for, but how much of the technique had been influenced by Abel Gantz, you mm. know, the obscure 
camera moves so the camera's on a swing at one point in uh, uh, Napoleon swinging backwards and forwards as Parliament falls to pieces and they're all screaming and shouting this camera's just doing these huge swoops over them and then uh, Coppola uses the exact same technique um, in the madhouse in Dracula so it's, it's a bit more on the nose and so on and so forth there's basically like dozens of little techniques that have obviously influenced his uh, yeah. his execution yeah. of Dracula so we're Kevin Brownlow. Brownlow. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd seen Napoleon, um, but only really thought of him as a historian. And you'd uh, got me Win Stanley, and it happened here, actually. But Did I, I get you Win Stanley, too? Yeah, yeah. Well, Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. So that's it. I've seen those two and his restoration. And mm. scrolling through his IMDb, he's all about preservation and searching yeah. out silent movies and trying to maintain that foundation were, history for future audiences they were they were quite funny the two of them there's a lot of archive there's some new interviews and there's some archive interviews on the on the disc and they were quite funny because after this had come out and actually it's worth noting this this movie actually did get picked up by united artists mm-hmm. did get a big fairly big release yeah. uh, there's some footage of that they shot coming up the stairs from the tube in piccadilly circus to one of the big cinemas there and there's a huge placard out there All right, cool. like like one of those ones that covers the entire side of a building yeah, yeah. for the movie wow so it it did get exposure and it, it did play for about about six weeks yeah i i remember reading in the book that they were saying you know there were queues around the block mm. you know they came on after thunderball was released i think and then they yeah. did the same business basically and then they had to move it to another cinema i think they got screwed by united artists they're they're, they're too polite to say it outright but um <laughs> They did, I'll say it for them. They never made a penny off the movie ever mm. at all. Yeah, right. um, I think they, they might possibly have made back their costs in terms of the deal they made, but they never got paid. Um, but then again, you see this footage and you think the amount of money that a placard like that or a hoarding or the advertising sure. costs, you can sort of see it, but I, I don't know. But the point I'm trying to make is that in one of the interviews, they, they kind of laugh about it and they say, you know, we thought we had the most amazing showreel. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, for something that they made completely themselves, apart from you know the lighting and the camera work, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know everything. There's there's a line in here like for for a year, or you know from when they got their completion money, there was like a year or two years when they everything on the film they were doing themselves. Mm-hmm. And to have a film as strong as this to be your first feature, and then not to have a further career yeah, as a result is you know they take it on the chin they've had other careers in film Andrew Mollo's been like a historical advisor and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Brownlow has his you know film historian and restoration work but it is it is a, a sin that they only have one other feature under their belts yeah it's true again he's very good it's not it's not as saleable a film as it happened here mm-hmm. but it's still a very very good film when Stanley uh, yeah, I think it's just one of those horrible injustices that yeah, true, true. it didn't catch up. Do you think on. because at the time it was all kind of cinema scope and, uh, you know, biblical epics and all of that kind of stuff coming out of... But you wouldn't have thought so. Here, it's, here it was still pretty for, raw. And yeah, for 64 there's still, you know, there's kind of like the French new wave of shooting in 16 yeah, yeah, mil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of black and white, you know, cameras are getting smaller and yeah, lighter. Yeah, there's yeah, Richard Lester mm-hmm. shooting kind of raw films here. Wasn't Peter Watkins Kevin Brownlow's edit assistant? He was involved in it in quite a few different ways. Um, I think he's in in one of the shots as an actor and advisor. <laughs> I 
can't remember clearly, and I would suggest everyone just read the book. And didn't they get short ends from Doctor Strangelove? Yes, they met Stanley Kubrick at... I, th- I can't remember what it was, it was a screen, but Kubrick was there and they, they got talking... And he said, you know, how are you doing for film stock? And he said, well, it's, you know, it's incredibly expensive. We can only afford it from now. And then he says, well, here's what you do. You contact my secretary um, tomorrow and they'll arrange for you to have all the short ends from Dr. Strangelove. And that was, you know, a huge chunk of the yeah, 35 yeah. mil they had to, which is a really nice Kubrick story. I yeah, think. yeah, it's really nice. Somebody who comes across often as quite cold and distant. Yeah, yeah, a lovely it. story. And then did Tony Richardson support the sort of closing year of the film's production? Supported them right through from seeing some of the early footage. Um, okay. he, he backed them and backed them really hard. Because oh, didn't Kevin Brownlow edit The White Bus? That's right, yeah. Yeah, that short film that yeah. was part of Red, White and Zero. Yeah, I think Woodfall Films got... Because mm. Kevin Brownlow was working in the industry. You know, he had, he had a, a day job in the industry at the time and he was in touch with people like Tony Richardson and yeah I think he he, he was working on that mm-hmm. yeah the film is credited with two directors even though Kevin Brownlow started it he's shared his credit with Andrew Molo who came on we mentioned when Kevin Brownlow was looking for military costumes mil- military costumes and found an avid uh, teenage collector um, and Andrew Molo went on to have a career as a production designer and also a military consultant so as a military consultant he worked on Dr Zhivago the eagle has landed but also the keep the keep <laughs> the keep yeah <laughs> and uh, so uh, i guess the, his collection went to good use yeah. there as well and the pianist right okay but then he was also a production designer um but he basically did all of the sharp films you know with uh, Sean Bean Oh, right, okay. Sharps War, Sharps This, Sharps That. Um, He did like 14 or 15 of those as production designer, so he definitely stayed in his sort of period uh, (laughs) wheelhouse. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's really nice, nice sort of story, isn't it? To Mm. hear this teenage boy obsessed with something turn it into a career. Made it into a career, yeah. yeah. So I guess uh, customarily we have to sort of wrap this up and. Nice awkward conclusion. Yeah, an awkward stitched on conclusion um, I am blown away by this film um, it's not something like that, that I've you know lived with for years yeah, I, yeah. I watched it way back um, about four, almost a decade ago and thought it was very very good indeed but then kind of shelved it slightly and then watching it again um, for this I'm, I'm absolutely stunned by it it's, I rank it very very highly and would recommend that everybody watch it yeah. I mean, at the, the point of... It's chilling. I, I just think it's... Uh, I don't know. I'm reluctant to call it anything other than a drama, but, you know, this... Yeah, at, at, at the risk of, you know, what some people might perceive as shoehorning politics into a film discussion, um, we are living in, in times when it's becoming, you know, it's becoming yeah. dangerously right-wing around yeah. the world. And yeah, it's, and we've I think... ignored the warnings that, you know, artists such as this have given us. Mm. You know, I think that's also part of its appeal is just to be like, come on, you have to listen. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it works as an extremely thought-provoking and, and competent, sounds too hard a word, but, you know, it's, it's a very, very good drama. Mm. But it also has some important lessons. Yeah, that's it. but it doesn't preach, it just shows you a world 
yeah. you know, that's, asks questions from every side. Yeah, that's sort of fascinating and spectacular in its authenticity and sort of grounded in reality. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's it's just a really great, important piece of British cinema. Um, 